the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. So the serpent was sentenced to humiliation. Satan was sentenced to being defeated by Christ as the seed of the woman. But what about the woman herself? What curse did God place upon Eve and all women? Well, God's judgment upon Eve is actually twofold, with the first aspect of her curse being increased pain in childbearing. Notice verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Welcome to Verse by Verse. Hearing about God's judgments on his creation might not be the most pleasant way to begin our study, but it will be helpful as we consider the difficulties in marriage and what we can do to smooth them out. When we understand what went wrong in the garden and the results of that disaster, it helps us see what is in ourselves that sabotages what was intended to be the most amazing of all human relationships, that between a husband and a wife. Pastor Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. He teaches the Bible verse by verse, hence the name of this program. But right now, we're in the midst of a rare topical study as we consider the biblical marriage and how to achieve it. There were four parties convicted in the first crime, and God pronounced judgment on all of them. Satan, Adam, and Eve are obviously culpable. But the serpent? That was just a dumb animal possessed by the devil, wasn't it? Well, maybe not as dumb as modern snakes. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Hmm. Perhaps the serpent agreed to Satan's plan. but Perhaps it shared Satan's prideful attitude. That might explain why God chose the punishment he chose. Because you have done this, he said, Cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Here's Pastor Steve now with our lesson. So what about the curse of eating dust? Well, snakes, as I said, they don't actually eat dust. They slide on the ground, but they don't eat dust. So is this an error in the Bible? No, of course not. Not at all. You see, the expression eating dust is a figure of speech that is commonly used in Scripture as well as other ancient literature to refer to humiliation and degradation. For example... Speaking of the king of Israel's enemies, in Psalm 72, verse 9, we read, Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Now, they're not literally licking the dust, just an expression to say they are so low. Nothing is lower than that. It's degradation. In fact, today we use a similar expression in speaking of the humiliation that takes place in the world of athletics. By referring to a team that suffers an embarrassing defeat, what we say is they bit the dust. It's just an expression. It was an embarrassing, humiliating defeat. So the serpent, who once exalted himself, is now in a perpetual state of humiliation. He's been reduced to a wiggling reptile, a lowly creature crawling upon the ground. And it's interesting to note that 
the effect of this curse will not end even during the millennial kingdom when the curse will be lifted for the rest of the animal world. Let me show you this. Isaiah chapter 65 Isaiah chapter 65, verse 25 says this, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. This is talking about the thousand year reign of Christ on earth, the messianic millennial kingdom. The wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. The curse will never be lifted, not even in the millennial kingdom. So every time you see a a snake slithering on its belly, it's, it's a reminder. It ought to be a reminder of the fall of man that the sin of exaltation was met with the curse of humiliation for the serpent's role in the fall. So the first of the divine curses that God gives is upon the serpent. But the serpent, as we know, he was only a tool, a willing tool, but he was just a tool in the hands of Satan. So what we read next is God's judgment then upon Satan himself for his role in the fall of man, which is that he will be defeated by the seed of the woman. Verse 15 starts this way. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, it is very likely that the devil had believed that with the fall of man, he would win the allegiance of Adam and Eve and all of their future children. They would just follow him. After all, They were now sinners, just like he was, and he is the God of this world, as scripture calls him, so he apparently thought that that they would all naturally follow him as their leader, as their king. Why not? They're sinners like, like him. They don't love God. They now are like him in nature. But if this is what the devil believed, then he was wrong, because God's judgment upon him, as we're told here, involved an ongoing hostility between his seed and Eve's seed. Now, who exactly is the seed of the devil and who exactly is the seed of the woman? And what is this ongoing enmity about? Well, this doesn't seem to be a reference to the general disdain that most people have for snakes. Because at the end of this verse, God speaks of a specific individual who will defeat Satan, and it is definitely not a snake. See, the seed of the devil is a reference to, note this, Those among mankind who follow Satan, meaning all the ungodly, meaning all unsaved people. Now, they may not even believe in Satan. They certainly are not conscious, at least most of them, that they are followers of his, but they are. And the seed of the woman is then a reference to all saved people. So the seed of Satan, unsaved. The seed of the woman, saved. And we know this is the right interpretation because this is precisely what the New Testament teaches. Remember John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said of some unsaved religious leaders, he said, your father is the devil. If God were your father, you would not treat me like this. Your father is the devil. But it is the apostle John who makes the case even stronger. Let me ask you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. John makes a case starting in verse 7. He says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He's, He's talking about practicing that 
believers practice righteousness. He's not talking about perfection, but the general direction and what characterizes the life of a true Christian is obedience to the word of God. Then he says in verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. Once again, he's not talking about just committing a sin, but this is your habitual lifestyle, your practice. If that's the way it is, then he's of the devil. For the devil, he says, has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin. He means he cannot continue to sin without any repentance because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Now let me put this together. John is making a contrast between the children of God and the children of the devil. And he says that the children of God and the children of the devil are completely different. They are distinct from each other in that God's children obey God's word and the devil's children do not. They don't want to obey it. They don't care about it. And it's because because the children of God love righteousness and they practice it that the children of Satan hate them and they despise them. And that's why John mentions Cain. Cain is the first son of Adam and Eve, and he was the first of the ungodly seed of the devil. He hated, and then he murdered his brother Abel, who was the first of the godly seed of the woman. That's why, that's why he says, don't be deceived by this. The world's going to hate you. You see, this is the way it has been ever since the fall of man. There's a line of unsaved people who are followers of Satan, even called children, his seed of Satan. And they are hostile towards the other line, the saved people, Eve's children, who have, by God's grace, been brought into a relationship with him. So unsaved people are hostile towards saved people because there's a very clear distinction between them in terms of their attitude towards God's righteous standards. The unsaved hate God's people for living righteous lives because they are the the devil's children. They have his same nature and they, like their father, the devil, they hate righteousness. And so when man fell, God cursed Satan with a perpetual conflict between his offspring, those humans who follow him, and Eve's saved offspring, those humans who follow the Lord. However, there is something else involved in this ongoing conflict because notice at the end of verse 15, God speaks of how this conflict is going to end by predicting that one of Eve's offspring, one of her seed, one of her children will ultimately defeat Satan. And thus we read, and he shall, it's translated bruise, but the thought here is crush. So I'll say it that way. He shall crush you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now this is the first proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Bible. Because this is the first prophecy in the Bible concerning a coming Messiah. 
And it refers to the future cross and the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Now, we know this is the case because once again, the New Testament teaches this. You don't have to turn there, but both in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, and the passage, verse I just read, 1 John 3, 8, we're told that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God is going to deliver or has delivered a crushing blow to Satan. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And that is precisely what God is predicting here in Genesis 3. He said it will happen. Now, using symbolic language of a snake in conflict with the man, God said that Jesus would crush the serpent's head, meaning that he would give a death blow to Satan. But in the process of doing this, he, meaning Christ, had to die. However, his death was just like a bruise on the heel in the sense that it wasn't final. It wasn't eternally fatal because Jesus would rise from the dead. Now, without going into all the details of this verse, because we just don't have the time today, the essence of this curse upon Satan is this. The devil's power over humans was broken by Christ in his death. How so? You see, Satan's power over us came from the fact that God's justice, God's righteousness, God's holiness demands that sin be punished. Demands it. Has to be punished. Therefore, Satan's goal was to lure Adam and Eve into sin so that God's wrath, hell itself, would fall on them and on all of us as their descendants forever. In other words, his goal, the devil's goal, was to keep people from being in fellowship with God, their creator. But what the devil failed to grasp is that God would one day become a man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and he would die on the cross to take the place of sinners and experience the Father's full fury of his wrath so that those who trust him as Savior would never have to experience hell. That's why Satan is a defeated enemy. Oh, he tempts us, and he has limited power, but he's a defeated enemy. His head has been crushed by the substitutionary death of Christ so that divine forgiveness of sin obtained at the cross renders him and his plan to send you to hell powerless. He has no power over you. Can't. So the serpent was sentenced to humiliation. Satan was sentenced to being defeated by Christ as the seed of the woman. But what about the woman herself? What curse did God place upon Eve and all women? Well, God's judgment upon Eve is actually twofold with the first aspect of her curse being increased pain in childbearing. Notice verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Now, prior to the fall, God had told Adam and Eve that they were to be fruitful and they were to multiply. And we would assume that this meant that prior to the fall, if they had had children, uh, that it, was, it would have been painless. They didn't have children prior to the fall, but we would assume it would have been painless. But now, after the fall, God tells Eve that she and every woman after her would experience a great deal of pain and agony in bringing forth children. So why? Why did God judge Eve this way? Listen closely, because in the words of one Bible teacher, and I quote, 
that pain would be a perpetual reminder that the woman helped conceive sin in the human race and passes it on to her children. In other words, every birth and the anguish that it brings is a painful reminder that Eve, a woman, was the one who gave birth to sin in the human experience. So bringing forth children in pain is the first aspect of God's curse upon Eve and on all of her female descendants. However, there is a second aspect of God's judgment on Eve that directly relates to marriage and a wife's relationship with her husband, which is that she will now have a new desire towards her husband. She'll have a new desire towards him. So we read verse 16, yet your desire will be for your husband. Now, what does this mean? Well, let me tell you first what it does not mean, and I alluded to this before. God is not telling Eve that as a result of the fall, she's now going to desire Adam sexually. That cannot be what God is saying because, as I said earlier, Eve desired her husband sexually before the fall. And just from a common sense standpoint, everyone knows that in a husband and wife relationship, it is usually the husband who, is, who, who has stronger sexual desires than his wife. So if God's judgment on Eve doesn't have anything to do with sexual desires, then in what sense will her desire now be for her husband? It has to be something that's different than what it was before the fall. Well, I want you to take a look at the last part of verse 16 which we'll look at more closely in a few minutes, but for right now, I want you to notice that this curse has to do also with with Adam ruling over Eve. God told Eve, your desire will be for your husband, and he, this is connected, and he will rule over you. Now listen closely. The only other time in the Bible where these two Hebrew words are, are used, desire and rule, are found together in the very next chapter in Genesis 4, verse 7. So if we can, we can figure out how they're used together in Genesis 4, we can certainly understand how they're used together in Genesis 3. Let's look at Genesis 4, 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire, here's that word, is for you. But you must, here's that other word, master it or rule over it. Now, these words are God's warning to Cain. We mentioned Cain earlier about his anger towards his brother Abel. And what God is telling Cain is that sin is crouching. It's personified here. It's crouching at the door and it desires to control you, Cain. It desires to possess you. But Cain, you must master it. You must rule over it, not let it rule over you. In other words, God pictures sin as a crouching beast of prey, about to pounce upon Cain, about to devour and control him. And the point of God's statement to Cain is to warn him, Cain, sin wants to dominate you. Sin wants to control you. But you must not let that happen. You must master sin. You must not let it control you. You must rule over it or it will rule over you. So now that we understand a little bit about how desire and rule are used together in Genesis 4, we can understand the judgment that God placed upon Eve for her role in the fall of man. And the judgment he pronounced upon her is that, listen closely, from this point 
forward, she who was once perfectly submissive to Adam and enjoyed it and loved it without any struggle, she's now going to struggle. She's now going to struggle with submission to her husband because now, as a fallen sinner, she is going to desire to control and dominate him. In other words, she is going to try to gain the upper hand in her relationship with Adam because she will want to be free from his authority over her. That's the sin that she'll struggle with. That's the curse pronounced upon her. You see, when Eve sinned, she was not in submission to Adam. Quite the opposite. She acted independent of him. She should not have. She was really usurping his role as her leader. She didn't consult with him. She didn't talk to him about this. She just did what she wanted to do. And she became the one, rather than following her husband, she led her husband into sin. She led him. So now she is cursed by God by having an ongoing sinful desire to be the leader of her husband all the time. She did it once. Now she's going to have that desire forever. But it will be a desire that will be met with constant strife and frustration on her part and the part of every wife. Why? Because God said that he, meaning Adam, and every husband after Adam will respond to their wife trying to gain the upper hand in their relationship by ruling over them, meaning that husbands will react to their wives' challenge to their authority by crushing it with chauvinistic dominance. Ladies and gentlemen, now you know the reason so many husbands and wives are struggling to have a good marriage. It's because they both want to dominate each other, and the results are disastrous. She refuses to submit to his leadership, and he meets her lack of submission with sinful dominance by becoming an insensitive dictator who lords it over her. Folks, this is where the battle of the sexes began, right here at the dawn of human history. You see, both the women's liberation movement and male chauvinism were were born at the fall of man because it's part of God's curse on men and women. Listen to these penetrating words by John MacArthur. He writes this, and I quote, women have a sinful inclination to usurp man's authority, and men have a sinful inclination to put women under their feet. The divine decree that men would rule over women in this way was part of God's curse on humanity. Throughout history, the most dominant distortion of relationships has occurred on the man's side. In most cultures of the ancient world, women were treated as little more than servants. And that practice is reflected in many parts of the world today. Even in supposedly liberated societies, women are frequently viewed primarily as sex objects who exist for the sensual pleasures of men. On the other hand, in today's society, it is feminine aggression that's taking its place as the dominant expression of the curse. Modern feminists are beginning to assert their rebellion against the divine order by mimicking the very worst traits of fallen males, brutality, cruelty, love of power, and a swaggering macho arrogance. So, question is, what do we do with this information? What do we do? How does this affect your marriage? Does this mean that all marriages, then, are doomed because of this innate battle for dominance? The answer is no. You're not doomed. You're not doomed at all. It just means that you have to face reality, that if you are a wife, there's always going to be a struggle within you because sin is always going to be pulling at you to be the one in charge of your husband. 
and not submit to his leadership and not care what he has to say. And for a husband, it means that you have to face the reality. There is always going to be this pull of sin in you to lord it over your wife and to be an insensitive dictator over her rather than a a loving, thoughtful leader. No, we are not doomed to a life of constant conflict in our marriages, but that doesn't mean harmony comes easily. As we heard early in this series, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can enjoy healthy relationships with our spouses. I'm glad you could be here today for Verse by Verse, as Pastor Steve Kreloff leads us in a study series about the biblical marriage. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. For more about Lakeside, go to lakesidechapel.com or call the office at 727-441-1714. You can catch up on earlier broadcasts by streaming or downloading them from the Message Archive page at our website, versebyverseradio.org. There's no charge for these files, but we do have a giving page for your convenience if the Lord is prompting you to help support Verse by Verse. Our generous supporters are a vital part of this ministry, and we are grateful for each one. The web address, once more, is versebyverseradio.org. I'm Jerry Peterson. I've mentioned before what a stupendous disaster Adam and Eve caused when they disobeyed God. So far, we've looked at God's judgments upon the serpent, Satan, and Eve. What about Adam? Pastor Steve will consider Adam's fate on the next Verse by Verse, and we'll also discover the main ingredient in having a biblical marriage. I hope you'll join us for that. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.